The first reading is from the second, from the twelfth psalm, which can be found on page five four eight of the Bibles. Psalm twelve. Help, Lord, for the godly are no more. The faithful have vanished from among men. Everyone lies to his neighbor. Their flattering lips speak with the deception. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and every boastful tongue that says, we will triumph with our tongues. We own our lips. Who is our master? Because of the oppression of the weak, and the groaning of the needy, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. O Lord, you will keep us safe, and protect us from such people forever. The wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Gospel of Matthew, page 978 in the Bibles. Matthew 12, beginning with verse 33. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, who are evil, say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words, you will be acquitted, and by your words, you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Grace, so much for that. And um, we're going to be looking at Psalm 12, continuing this summer series of uh, Psalms. And if you're a note taker or find yourself easily disorientated in the curate's sermons, then you may find uh, this little three-part heading outline helpful on the back of the, the notice sheet. I'm going to pray for help for me in the pulpit and for you as you sit in the seats. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, by nature I'm not a clear teacher of your word. By nature I reject you. So I pray for help as a preacher that you would enable me to have a heart warm to you, and lips which speak clearly of you. And pray for the rest of us that we would be taught 
And it'd be a joyful thing as we're taught by your pure, silver, refined words for your namesake. Amen. Words. Words are all pervasive in our society. Apparently, the average website has on it 2,500 words. And so if you and I uh, look at a few of those in one day, that's enough to write a short book. Um, Apparently, the average person hears during the course of a day, and I've no idea how one works this out, 100,000 words. Words on signposts, on the radio, eavesdrop conversations on the tube, and indeed with your conversation partner at coffee. Apparently, the average person, and you'll know where you fit on this scale, uh, speaks somewhere between 10 and 20,000 words every day. But we do live in a society which is saturated with words. Why? It's because words are the currency which communicate reality and truth to one another. That is why words are so important. Without words, it's impossible either to understand or to communicate reality or truth. Uh, Words, therefore, are powerful. It's why at Christmas time, when the family are playing charades and Pictionary, it is so tempting to break the rules and to speak, is it not? It's because the words are powerful. If I just tell them who I'm acting as, they'll know immediately. It's why it's so frustrating to be in a foreign country and not to know the language. Maybe you've had that experience this summer. It's impossible to have the reality surrounding you communicated to you. I I cannot find out where the nearest station is. I cannot communicate to them that my wife is lactose intolerant. We're just sort of linguistic infantiles in a foreign country not knowing the language. Words are all pervasive because words are all powerful. It's why the 20th century philosopher Wittgenstein was able to say this. The limits of my language means the limits of my world. I thought that was quite profound. The limits of my language means the limits of my world. Now, here's the question that our psalm poses. If words are the currency communicating reality and truth to one another, then what happens when somebody uses their words to speak untruth to somebody? It's a situation which spurred King David to write this wonderful psalm, this song, Psalm 12. And it brings us to our first heading, wicked words, in verses 1 to 4. I'm going to read out verse 2. Everyone lies to his neighbor. Their flattering lips speak with deception. We can imagine King David keeping his ear to the ground, as we say, and all he hears are wicked words. The word for lies here literally means in the Hebrew emptiness, emptinesses. This is talk which has no truth or reality content to it. Words which may appear to contain truth but fundamentally are just vacuums. The word for flattering here literally means smooth. Don't you like that? It's 
That's what flattery is, isn't it? Someone flatters me, and it's like they're just massaging my ear. The words they're using are soft, they're velvety, and I, I like them. They do not contain the grit of reality and truth. Um, the, the word for deception here means with a double heart, or literally in the Hebrew, with a heart and a heart. It doesn't mean these words are heartfelt, or from the heart, as we say. It means they are double words. These are people who say one thing to this group of people and another thing to this group of people. They're sort of conversational chameleons. They change their colors according to whom they are speaking to. And I guess we'll know something of that in our day. The empty words of adverts and of politicians promising much more than they could possibly hope to deliver. Or the smooth words of our fellow office workers, maybe at the office function, as they come up and just try and massage our ear a bit. Why? Well, so we might do them a favor next week or further down the line when they are feeling needy. Smooth words. Or maybe, possibly the most painful category, double talk. Where within our own friendship group, we discover second or third hand that she really doesn't think of us what she says to our face. Double talk, very painful. The day of my word is my bond is no longer with us. This is empty, smooth, double talk. Our New Testament reading reminded us of how serious our words are. I wonder if you noticed that from the reading Grace read. They come from deep within our hearts. Our words are like a CAT scan of our hearts. They show our health or unhealthiness deep within. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And David sees the same thing in our psalm, verse 4. They're saying, we will triumph with our tongues. We own our lips. Who is our master? I wonder if you saw the logic of uh, their thinking there. We'll do what we want with our tongues, our words, our speech. Why? Because we own our lips. Why? Because we have no master other than ourselves. It is impeccable logic, verse 4, and it is terrible theology, verse 4. Impeccable logic, because if I am my own master, of course I can use my words to whatever end I like. I can flatter people to try and get promoted. I can lie to people to get out of tight corners. I can use double talk to try and save face, of course. I'm my own master, the captain of my own destiny. It's impeccable logic, but it's terrible theology. Because actually, as we know, every human being receives their lips and tongue and ability with words as much as anything else from God, who is our only master. And therefore, no, I cannot use my words to my own ends. I can only use them for the ends he's given them for me to use. I do not own my lips. That is why they're fundamentally wicked words, because they spring from hearts opposed to God. It can be very commonplace, can't it, to, to pretend that words don't matter. 
there's such a thing as cheap talk, we say, um, or, or that words really won't hurt me as much as those sticks and those stones, if you remember that nursery rhyme. But David knows that that isn't true. According to his song here, words matter a great deal because they fundamentally affect the structure of society. I was surprised to see this in my sermon preparation. They fundamentally affect the structure of society in two main ways. First, did you spot it? They oppress the poor and the weak in society. You see that in verse 5. These wicked words are causing the oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy. And this past week, I wish you could have seen me at my desk, just racking my brains, trying to think, how on earth can words of flattery and lies and empty words like that, how can they harm the poor? It's like I was banging my head against this passage and it wouldn't yield an answer. I think the answer is this. It's because words like those words, flattery, lies, deceit, they are only and always used for self-advancement. They are selfish words. Words, verse 4, which serve myself as my master. And therefore, these kinds of words are never designed to help anybody else. Least of all, the weak and the poor. If you think about the kind of people you and I might be tempted to flatter, I doubt it would be the homeless man down outside Victoria bus station because he will never be in a position to help us. No, the people I flatter are the rich and the wealthy and the powerful. And therefore, these words harm the weak and the poor in society. But the second way in which these words affect the structure of society is in verse 1. It's one of the shortest prayers in the Bible. Help, Lord. And then he goes on. For the godly are no more. The faithful have vanished from among men. There are two ways of vanishing in this world. The first is by being destroyed. And it could be that the godly here, David is referring to, have been destroyed by the oppression of the wicked words. But the second way of vanishing is by blending in. In that chameleon way. And I think that is what David is referring to. He says, the godly are no more. They've, they've blended in to this use of wicked words that we see in verse 2. And many of us, I know that temptation. I wonder if you do. It's a scary thing to live in a world where smooth, empty, and double talk are the norms. I wonder if you agree where it is normal to flatter people and not speak truth, where it is normal to twist the truth, tell an emptiness, a lie. It's a scary thing to stick to substantial truth, gritty truth, truth which doesn't necessarily sound smooth. And it's a scary thing because it makes me worry that I will fall out of the flattery loop, that people will find my company awkward, that they will no longer respect me, that I may become one of the weak and the needy of that verse in this psalm. And if I become a weak person and a needy person, I worry who will protect me. 
And so the temptation is to give in to the wicked words of flattery and emptiness and smoothness. Who will protect me? Brings us to our second heading, God's pure promise. I love these verses. Verses 5 to 6. Because of the oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy, this is the Lord speaking, I will now arise. I will protect them from those who malign them. And this is just a lovely postscript that David adds. And the words of the Lord are flawless. Flawless. Like, like and he's casting around for an image to, de- to describe this beauty and this purity. And his mind alights on the smelting of silver. Like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. It's the biblical number for perfection. Seven. Now, when the Lord says, I will now arise, it's not that he's been asleep. It's not that he's been slumbering and he's just been woken up by the words of the needy and he's slightly angry about it. It's that he's decided that this is the opportune time for decisive action. We read in Psalm 121, the Lord neither slumbers nor sleeps. He was just waiting for the right moment. And he promises to right the societal wrongs of these wicked words. Verse 6 is just marvelous. It's as if David is saying, I know that some people break their promises. I know that I break my promises. But here is somebody, and he points to the Lord, who never does that. Here is somebody whose words are so pure that they are utterly, utterly dependable. Now, the, the silver picture here is partly an image of beauty. We're told in Proverbs 25 verse 11 that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. It's an image of beauty and and we'll know that the Lord's words are indeed beautiful. They are the best poetry ever written. They're fitly spoken, these words. And yet more than that, they are, it's an image of dependability. That's what the purity means here. It's an image of pure truth. These words are refined from the dross of lies and of flattery and of emptiness. These words are dependable. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. And that is a truth because you read it in the word of God. If we worry that not giving in to the wicked words in our world will leave us vulnerable and weak and we're asking the question, who will protect us if we only speak truth? Well, here's our answer. The Lord will. He promises that he will, and his promise is pure. Isn't it interesting that God fights words with words in this psalm? There are the wicked words, and he fights them with his pure words. He fights fire with fire, words with words. It isn't that words are polluted. They can be redeemed and used to fight the wickedness. And so it's always been. Without words, the Christian faith would fall apart at the seams. The foundations would would crumble immediately. God here has given us a, a lot of pure words in this book. 
I googled it, and in the NIV translation we have here, we have 726,109 pure words. They're words of truth to counteract the devil's deceit. Words of substance to counteract the empty promises of sin. Words of stable truth that are equally true across the ages and across the continents, whomever we are speaking with. It's not double talk. And not only has God given us this book, the Bible, but all the way through biblical history, he gives teachers of these words. In the Old Testament, he didn't just give the law, capital L, he gave the prophets. In the New Testament times now, he doesn't just give the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, but pastor teachers to teach that. Now, if we believe that wicked words are best fought with God's pure words, we do well to heed faithful Bible teaching. And and every part of that little phrase is important. Faithful Bible teaching. The history of the Bible teaches us that God's people tend not to utterly reject God's word when they leave God alone. They want to keep the semblance of God speaking whilst changing what he says. So in the Old Testament, it's stunning to see it, but they say to the prophets of old, look, we don't want you to say that true and faithful stuff. We want you to speak words of flattery to us. Please could you speak words that are smooth to us? So they want to keep the prophet, but not the faithful prophet. And in the New Testament times, people, when they go away from the Lord, want to keep the pastor teacher. They say, please could you teach us things which our itching ears want to hear? They don't get rid of the pastor teacher, just get rid of the faithful pastor teacher. Indeed, it's no surprise that when the pure word of God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to earth, we received him not in the words of John chapter 1. He came full of grace and truth, and that truth wasn't always easy to hear. No wonder that we received him not. We wanted a smooth word, a word of flattery, but Jesus gave us the truth which we need. So can I say, by way of application on this second point, please weigh very carefully, and I say this to myself as well, Please weigh very carefully whatever we hear taught from the Bible against what the Bible says. Please weigh what we hear from this pulpit carefully, what I teach from this pulpit carefully, against the passage that's being taught or the whole sweep and balance of Scripture or the the ostensibly Christian books that are on the books uh, on the Internet. Don't just trust them because they say Christian on the front. Weigh it carefully against the Bible. There are many wolves in sheep's clothing around. Or indeed, sermons online, even if they're a famous preacher. Please don't assume that they will be pure words, faithful words. And secondly, I guess it makes sense for us to want to imitate God's pure talk ourselves. And I think that's very hard to do indeed, especially, funnily enough, in church. Isn't it easy? Imagine we've got a friend, maybe it's not something we need to imagine, but a friend who's filled with anxiety, and and they're worried about contracting cancer. They're worried about being made redundant. They're worried about postnatal depression. I don't know, they're worried. Isn't it all too easy to say to them as we try and comfort them, oh, don't worry, it'll be fine. 
Really? Christians do contract cancer, as many of us know, and we do get made redundant, and we do get depression. What we're saying there is actually an emptiness. I'm sure it'll be fine. Wouldn't it be better to to, to pass on one of God's solid promises to talk about joy even in suffering? Yes, it may be hard, but God will be with you. Or, or imagine a, a lovely Christian woman who's just struggling with her singleness. And there are many uh, like that in our world. And it's so easy to say to that, that, that young woman, I'm sure the right man is just around the corner. Well, maybe, but maybe not. I know a number of people who've been single and have been constantly looking for that man all the way through their lives. And I think saying things like that is an emptiness. It's a smooth thing to say. It makes it easy, but it's not a truth. Wouldn't it be better to say, singleness is a gift right now. You've you've got it. And Christ will be your husband come the new creation. Those are harder things to say, but they're true. So, wicked words, God's pure promise, and finally and briefly, holding on to the promise in the present. The promise in the present. From verses 7 to 8. Do you not think that King David could have done with an editor to his psalm? Did you notice that from the end of the psalm? Shouldn't he have finished the psalm with verse 7 rather than verse 8? Let me read them to us. O Lord, you'll keep us safe and protect us from such people forever. That is a strong finish to the psalm. I want him to draw stumps there. I want to say, David, that's good. Okay, let's, no, 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 you, no, stop, stop. But he carries on writing. And what is his pen writing? The wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men. Rub it out. It's too late. No rubbers existed. You think David needs an editor with this song? But in actual fact, the structure here is not a mistake. In fact, David is making quite a profound point to us at the end of his psalm here. He's saying it's hard to hold on to the promise of verse 7, God will protect the weak and the needy, when the reality of verse 8 continues. It's hard really to believe that God will protect when we look out of our window and the situation of verse 2 is completely unchanged. It's hard. The wicked freely strutting about it like a peacock. No one's touched them. But we prayed and God promised, but it hasn't changed. And that's hard. And David says, yes, it is hard, but that's okay. I I don't know about you, but maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you've found yourself sometimes in a vicious cycle and the cycle goes something like this. We look out into the world and we are disturbed by the ugliness that we see. For David, it was the wicked words. And boy, do we pray that the Lord would intervene. We say, Lord, stop this. And then we're reassured and we hear the Lord's promise in Scripture and he says, I will, I'll arise, I'm going to stop it. And then we rush back to the window again, as it were, to see if it stopped, and it's still going on. And the worst thing about this vicious cycle is it can result in a lack of faith in us, an erosion of our faith, which then decreases our praying. 
because we think it doesn't work, and decreases our reading of Scripture because we don't think he means what he promises. It's a vicious cycle. And this psalm says it's okay to pray something which the Lord has promised he'll do and not see any visible change yet. Because God will one day intervene. It's a future tense intervention. One day he'll make all things right. But the fact that it's not yet is fine, David says. I'm going to close with those famous words from the Apostle Peter. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, very simply, we want to pray, help, Lord. Would you please intervene? Would you arise? Would you come and protect the weak and the needy in our land who are being abused by the words of flattery and lies and deception amongst the corridors of power in our land? And as we wait for you to intervene, we pray that you would keep us as those who study and cherish your pure promise words and those who imitate them. Enable us here at St. Michael's to be a people who speak truth. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Well, we stand to